Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. to take it this morning and turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 1, as we continue a new study together that we began last week in the book of James. If you missed out last week, we only went through one verse, so you're not that far behind. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be looking at verses 2 to 4. So good to just see faces looking back at me this morning. Uh, I've missed your faces I will say, while you're away, all of these pews got saved, okay? Uh, they're all, they all made professions of faith, and so we're good to go. James chapter 1, looking this morning at verses 2 to 4. The year was 2003. I was a junior in college. That dates me, maybe you. John Piper had just published a book entitled, Don't Waste your life. And I must say, church, that it was a book that radically changed my life. I'll never forget it, and I'll never forget how he begins the book by telling this beautiful and yet heart-wrenching story of an older man who gave his life to Christ at one of his father's evangelistic rallies. The story goes like this. Piper writes, for me as a boy, one of the most gripping illustrations my father would use in his sermons was the story of a man converted in his old age. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant. But this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to whatever degree I could imagine, he could imagine, and to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed, and God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ, and he was saved and given eternal life. But that did not stop him, he writes, from sobbing and saying, as tears ran down his wrinkled face, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. This was the story that gripped me more than any other, because it's the story of an old man weeping that he had wasted his life. In those early years, God awakened in me a fear and a passion not to waste my life. The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it, was a fearful and horrible thought. Church, I think that if the Apostle James had his very own title for our passage this morning, if he had a title for verses 2 to 4 this morning, I think perhaps James would have entitled these verses this morning, Don't waste your trials. Don't waste your trials. And the reason is because it's quite possible, and sadly it's often the case, that you and I face the potential danger of wasting our trials. Or perhaps coming to the end of a trial, the end of a a period of suffering in our lives, and sadly realizing 
painfully recognizing that we've wasted it. What a fearful thought that would be. What a horrible thought that would be, right? Do you realize, church, that you and I face the potential danger of wasting what it is that God wants to do in us through our trials? Now, how, how is that, you might ask? How, how would we waste it? Well, in verses 2 to 4 this morning, James, he shows us that while trials are the norm in the Christian life, they are the common experience of each and every one of us, that we shouldn't be surprised by them, we shouldn't be caught off guard by them, and that while every trial we do experience has been divinely inspired by God himself, Sadly, James shows his readers this morning that it's quite possible, in fact, it's all too common for many Christians to waste their trials. So, to my fellow Christians this morning, listen, if we aren't careful, we too, we too can waste our trials. We can. And the reason is because it is all too often that you and I fail to see our various trials in life, we fail to view them from a biblically informed perspective. From a divine perspective, we fail to remind ourselves of their intended purpose in our lives, and thus we waste them. We waste what it is God wants to do in and through the trials of our life. His purposes for us end them. And so this morning, James, he writes to his original readers who are also suffering. They are experiencing various trials, and he writes to them this morning in order to provide them with a divine perspective of their trials and instructions for them in their trials so that they won't waste their trials. And I think it's very applicable for us, given the trials that you are experiencing in your life right now, and I think even given very timely in the days in which we find ourselves. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to begin reading. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. Commentator Craig Blomberg, he writes this. He says this about these verses. He says, frankly, many of us would prefer that this, bio, this passage were not in the Bible. <laughs> would you say that this morning? Verse 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Would you prefer that this passage weren't in the Bible? He goes on to say, however, but this passage also may be one of the most profound and crucial for truly mature Christian living. Oh my. <laughs> in other words, he's saying verses 2 to 4 are one of the most important passages in the Bible about spiritual maturity. That's quite a statement. And that should, right there, Christian, cause you to sit up and listen. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible for your spiritual maturity. The letter of James, it's all about mature Christian living. As we said last week, the letter of James, it's about real, genuine faith. It's, a, it's about a living and active faith. The book of James is a call to spiritual action. It's a call to, to faith in action. 
So it's a picture of what mature Christian living really looks like. And so then is it any surprise, is it any surprise then in verse 1 that just after notice James identifies himself, and remember we said that this James, he's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and just after he identifies the original audience, notice it's these 12 tribes in the dispersion, so this primarily Jewish Christian audience, and then after greeting them, is it any surprise to us that this letter, a letter all about mature Christian living, that James would then launch immediately in verse 2 to one of the most important topics about spiritual maturity? One of the most important aspects of our spiritual maturity, the Christian's response to trials. I don't think so. I don't think so. It's not by accident that this is the first topic he addresses. Not to mention in verse 1, note again James's original audience. Look there. Who were these 12 tribes in the dispersion? Well, last week I told you that it appears that the original recipients of this letter, they were converted Jews who were originally part of the church in Jerusalem, which the book of Acts tells us James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But this church, they were, they were dispersed. They were, they were scattered because of religious persecution. Acts chapter 8 following, if you remember, the stoning of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read that there arose that day a great persecution of the church of Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So these were Jewish Christians who were once under the leadership of James. They're in Jerusalem, but now they're scattered because of violent persecution. And so their lives, think about it, had abruptly and dramatically changed. They were now unexpectedly refugees, driven away from their homeland and everything that they knew. And they were facing all manner of trials and challenges and suffering and threats and poverty and persecution. James isn't writing here to a happy church plant. (laughs) These are struggling exiles forced to relocate. And so it's no wonder No wonder that James immediately launches here into the topic of trials. In fact, the topic of trials pretty much dominates all of chapter 1, as we're going to see. And we really see it throughout this letter as well. In fact, let me just say a quick word here about the book of James. Many scholars, many commentators, they found it difficult to really find any sort of structure to the the book of James. In fact, Luther himself even said, James throws things together chaotically. (laughs) That's another disparaging comment Luther makes about the book of James. He hated James. Because James, he's just, it's just sort of these short, pithy, almost proverbial-like statements that really upon first reading, they seem to be sort of just loosely connected. In fact, James is often nicknamed the Proverbs of the New Testament. However, However, that doesn't mean there isn't a structure. There is a structure. There is. There is form to this letter. In fact, we see this structure here in chapter 1. It's about trials and faith in our trials that dominate this whole chapter. Just notice with me for a moment. Look there. If you notice in verse 2 and then down in verse 12, they serve as sort of bookends here about faith and then faith in our trials or trials and our faith in our trials. So in verses 2 to 4, James, he's going to talk about the Christian's proper response to trials and the purpose of trials. And then we'll see next time, notice in verses 5 to 8, he's going to talk about the wisdom from God we need to view our trials rightly. 
to see the world rightly, to have a proper biblical perspective. And then in verses 9 to 11, James is going to show us a very common particular trial of poverty. He's going to talk about the rich and the poor, a big theme in this letter. And then finally, notice in verse 12, this book in James, he looks to the Christian's future eternal reward for faithfully enduring trials. Look there, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So trials and faith in our trials dominates this section. And thus James is writing to hurting, suffering people. And here in verse 2, we meet James and the first command that he gives us. The first command in his letter. He gives us one very surprising command. Look there, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is absolutely stunning. Is it not? Joy. And as we'll see what James says here to his original readers, it has application for us. In fact, in fact, listen. All you need for this sermon to apply to your life today is one trial. That's all you need. And many of you have many more. So this sermon is for you. This text is for you. Three things I want you to see. Three things. Number one, the assumed reality of our trials. The assumed reality of our trials in verse 2. Notice James addresses two things here about our trials. He's going to address the reality of them, and he's going to address the variety of them. The reality of them and the variety of them. Now, I'm going to come back to that command at the beginning of verse 2 later because first, I want you to see the foundation of the command he's going to give you, okay, in order for that command to make sense. So, so first, I want you to notice the reality of trials and the variety of trials. First, notice the reality of them. James assumes, notice, we will have trials. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So notice, it's not if you meet them, but what? When you meet them. When you meet them. It's not you might have trials, but when you do have trials. So James is assuming here that his readers have various trials. So that the Christian, for the Christian, trials, they, they shouldn't be thought of as something unique. They shouldn't be thought of as something strange or some sort of isolated freak occurrence. No, rather, James says, for the Christian, trials are, in fact, the norm. And life is full of them, is it not? And so, listen, no Christian, no Christian is exempt from them. Don't believe any TV preacher who tells you otherwise. No, friends, trials are the norm. And Scripture clearly teaches this. It testifies to this reality, does it not? Not just here in James, but flip over. Notice also, let me show you a couple of other places. Turn with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Fast fingers. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, where Peter says, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Sounds almost identical to James. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Not you might, you will. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Through many tribulations, or we might say trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. So, Scripture clearly 
teaches that trials are the norm for the Christian. But not only Scripture. Not just Scripture. Our very own lives also testify to this reality as well, don't they? Does your life testify to the reality of trials? I mean, no doubt, I could just start right here in the front row. And we could just sort of work our way through this entire room and every single one of you could stand up and you can testify to various trials that you have experienced in your life that each one of you in various ways to differing degrees have suffered and you've experienced trials in your life. Some perhaps, some perhaps you've walked through difficult trials in the past and you can recall those trials. You can remember those things. Others of you, I'm sure you're walking through many hard, difficult things right now at this moment. And let me tell you what, when you wake up tomorrow, trials are going to be there to meet you then too. And that's what James is doing here in verse 2. Is he's, he, he's, he's adjusting our perspective. He's adjusting our expectation of the Christian life. It's hard. Alec Matier in his commentary on James, he says, James is nothing if not realistic. <laughs> Amen. Life, he says, is a tale of various trials. Have you found that to be true? If you have it, you will. No matter what stage of life you find yourself in right now, our lives seem to be a tale of many various trials from which, listen, listen, none of us, none of us are exempt. And James assumes here the reality of trials in the Christian life. However, He doesn't just assume the reality of trials. Notice also that James, in verse 2, notes the variety of them. The trials in the life of the Christian come in various forms. They come in all shapes and sizes. Look there again. Also notice the variety of our trials. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Various kinds. So note, there are various kinds of trials. James Cast the net just as wide as he possibly can here. Not all trials look the same. They don't all come in the same package, nor do we experience them, listen, to the same degree, every one of us. Some are big trials, some are small trials, some are major trials, some are minor trials, but they're trials nonetheless. So there's a whole range of trials that James has in mind here. Verse 2 when he says, trials of various, various kinds. In fact, that word various there, that same word that Peter used, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6, you've been grieved by various trials. That word various, here's what it means. It means multicolored. Multicolored. Meaning they are diverse. They are varied trials. They come, trials do, in different shapes. They come in different shades. They come in varying degrees. So in other words, James is saying here, he's referring to any and every trial, every experience, every difficulty that Christians face living in a fallen world. That's what he means by various trials. And we see here, don't we? Throughout this letter, the various trials he's addressing in the lives of his original readers. Let me just highlight some that he's going to address. I already noted one in verse 1. They've been exiled in their homeland, so, so persecution, dispersion, it's a trial they're facing. Notice over in verses 9 to 11, we see poverty and financial problems. 
We see that again in chapter 2. We see it in chapter 4. We see it again in chapter 5. Notice in chapter 2, verse 6, many are being oppressed. They're being marginalized. They're being ostracized. Chapter 4, there's conflicts in these churches going on. Chapter 5, verse 4, it appears there's also some kind of economic injustice that's happening here. Or notice at the end of the letter, in chapter 5, verse 14, James, he's going to speak of some of them even being physically sick. So we see here, don't we, the various kinds of trials that James is addressing in the lives of his original audience. But friends, Listen, the varying degree and nature of trials in our lives is no different, is it not? I wonder what are the various kinds of trials that you are experiencing right now. It's probably whatever's coming to mind as I'm speaking. Maybe, maybe it's physical. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's a trial of a sickness. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's loss. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's unemployment. Maybe you're struggling to pay your bills. Maybe it's a marital trial. Maybe it's a parenting trial. Maybe it's an aging trial. Whatever the case may be, James is clear that each of us have trials and they will vary and they're the norm. However, James is also clear here That while trials are inevitable, listen, they aren't without meaning. They have a purpose. They have an intended effect. They're not random. They're not meaningless. This is not a series of unfortunate events. This is not a stroke of bad luck. No, they're purposeful. Point number two, the divine purpose of our trials the divine purpose of our trials. Notice there in verse 3. Notice that our many and varying trials, they come into our lives. In fact, James says, God sovereignly brings them into our lives with meaning, with purpose, significance. So listen, there's no such thing as a meaningless trial, as a pointless trial. Verse 2, notice, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, Christians, listen, Christians can be assured that every trial that comes into their life, every trial that comes into their life, it comes with a divine purpose. God has a reason for it. So in verse 3, notice James gives us the reason. He gives us the reason for why we can obey this stunning command in verse 2 to count it all joy, which we'll come back to. Notice verse 3, 4, 4. So here is why the Christian can count it all joy. Verse 3, 4, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So notice the reason, the purpose of God. Notice just a couple things here. Number one, notice James is reminding them of something they already know. You see that? Verse three, for you know. You already know this stuff. You've already been taught this. Some of you may be the first time you've heard this today, ever. 
but I'm willing to bet most of you in this room, you know this. You've heard this? Are you listening? (laughs) James, why are you telling them something they already know? Why are you reminding them again of the purpose of their trials? Well, it's because, church, I think you'd agree, it's easy to forget it, right? It's easy to forget this. They are prone to easily forget this, and thus they need to be constantly, consistently reminded of it. They need to be assured of it again and again and again and again. And friends, so do we. Why? Because we too easily forget this. In the midst of our trials, it is easy to forget this. Wouldn't you agree? To forget that in our trials, in our sufferings, no matter how big, no matter how small, that God has a purpose in them, he has a reason for them, that they aren't meaningless, they aren't random, they're not without his good, wise design for us. And James, he wants his readers to have a different perspective of their trials. And so he reminds them here again of the divine perspective that each of us must have when we face trials. So then what's the divine perspective? What is God's divine intended purpose for our trials? Second thing here about this divine purpose, notice, notice, each and every trial that comes into our lives, James says, is a sovereignly purposed trial by God in order to test our faith. It is sovereignly purposed by God in order to test our faith. That's its purpose. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials are purposed by God in our lives to test our faith. Now, I must note here that James raises here a whole host of questions that he doesn't in this letter fully answer. (laughs) He doesn't completely answer, right? Here's what I mean. Why does God allow the righteous to suffer? Have you ever asked that question? That is one of the most perplexing, difficult questions that we can ask, isn't it? And yet James doesn't really give us a complete answer here. Therefore, in this sermon, I can't give you a complete answer. Nor does the Bible even give you a complete answer. Why do Christians suffer? Why are there trials? Why are there difficulties, intense suffering in our lives? Well, we realize that there's actually several nuanced answers to that question that the Bible gives, okay? We'll agree, for example, Christians suffer at the hands of Satan. Go read the book of Job. Christians face all kinds of trials because we live in a fallen world. Go read Romans chapter 8. We suffer because of the foolish choices of others. We suffer because of our own actions, consequences of sin. And James is even going to tell us, notice down in verse 13, that God tempts no one with evil. So while these trials come from Him, He has no evil intent in them. How does that all work together? (laughs) However, let let me just be clear here. What James does tell us here is that the suffering and trials of believers are always always under the providential control of God who designs and purposes them for our good. 
And so then in verse 3, Jay says, notice, trials are tests. Trials are tests. Trials are tests designed and purposed by God in order, notice, he says, to strengthen, to increase, to solidify, to refine our faith. Verse 3, the testing of your faith which produces steadfastness. And then in verse 4, notice, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Meaning that you will be spiritually mature. This is God's divine purpose for our trials. Doug Moo comments, he says here, that both Old Testament occurrences of that word there, notice in verse 2 or verse 3, of that word testing or, or, or test, they're used, he says, to describe the process of refining metal. So he writes, the difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith, heeding it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be burned away and so that it might become pure. So trials, in other words, they are tests of our faith. They purify our faith. They strengthen our faith. And verse 3, trials test our faith, notice James says, in order to produce steadfastness. Some translations say endurance or or patience or perseverance. And again, Mu comments that this word steadfastness, he says, it has the idea of remaining under something. That's what steadfastness means. So he goes on to say, the picture is of a person successfully carrying a heavy load for a long time. That's the picture here of steadfastness. And so in other words, our faith grows through learning to persevere under trials. Suffering proves our faith. It deepens our faith. It strengthens our faith. In essence, you could say, you could say, faith Our faith is like a muscle. It's like a muscle. And as it's worked out, someone told me this. I've never actually gone to the gym to test whether or not this is true. But someone has told me that as you work it out, as you, the resistance, right, against the weight, bearing under the weight, pressing against it, pushing against it, it grows. It becomes stronger. And friends, that's exactly what trials are intended and purposed by God to do for your faith. And so notice here, James says that no trial comes into our life without a divine purpose. And that purpose has been designed and fashioned by God, specifically tailored to you and you and you, to grow your faith in steadfastness. Endurance, perseverance. And listen, it's crucial that we know this. It's crucial that we don't forget this. That we remind ourselves regularly of this. Why? Because if not, then here's what happens. When trials come into your life, you will lack the biblical perspective you need to rightly face them so that your faith will grow. And you'll be tempted to view your trials, listen, 
by how you feel rather than what you know to be true. How often are you tempted to respond to difficulties and inconveniences and trials in your life based on how you feel rather than what you know to be true? Lord, this doesn't feel very loving. It doesn't feel very purposeful. It doesn't feel as if it is for my good. Our feelings, our feelings are the most unreliable, unpredictable part of us. Right? Mine change every hour. I don't know about yours. And if we approach our trials based on how we feel, rather than what we know to be true from God's word, we'll fail to see his purpose for them in our lives. You see what I'm saying? And if we don't have this divine perspective of our trials, if we aren't aware of God's divine purpose in them, then listen, verses 2 to 4 here, they're going to offer you no comfort. They're going to offer you no encouragement. Verse 3 isn't encouraging if our only goal in life is to have nice, easy, comfortable lives. Your best life now. If that's your goal, Christian, you're going to be miserable. You'll respond negatively. You'll respond wrongly. You'll respond sinfully to the trials in your life. What might be some of those wrong responses to trials? Let me give you a few. Maybe you fall in this somewhere. Before we look at the right one. Let me just give you a few. When you and I fail to see God's divine purpose in our trials, here's what it's going to often produce. Here's, here's, here's going to be the wrong perspective. Number one, some of you maybe have experienced this. It leads to bitterness. You become like Naomi, right? The book of Ruth. Angry with God. Hardened toward God. Respond with bitterness. Second, envy. I want their life. I want their money. I want their health. I want their kids. (laughs) Better behave than mine. Third, self-pity. Woe is me. Woe is me, which is really just another form of pride. Fourth, you turn to what's called, someone coined this phrase, functional saviors. Functional saviors. And what I mean by that is things other than Jesus to soothe you, to comfort you when you face a trial, to bring you joy, to bring you peace. Functional saviors. Things like alcohol, prescription drugs, sexual sin, TV and entertainment to numb you, distract you, food, you lose yourself in your hobbies, your suffering, your trial, it becomes your identity. Finally, it leads to despair, it leads to depression. The, These will inevitably be the result when we fail to see and respond appropriately to God's divine purpose in our trials. Which leads to the final point. What should be our response to trials? Here's the third point. The necessary response to our trials. The necessary response to our trials. We see it it in verse 2 and in verse 4. 
And here we see the appropriate, necessary response James gives us to our trials. We see it, notice verse 2 and verse 4. In fact, we encounter here the very first commands, the very first imperatives James gives us in this letter. Remember, I told you that there is a higher frequency of imperative verbs, commands, in the letter of James than in any other New Testament letter. There's, there's 59 commands here in these five chapters. So that, that on average is like 10 commands per chapter that we're going to see in this letter. So the letter of James is asking you, Christian, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you just sitting or are you doing? Because faith works. It acts. And James, he wants his original readers and he wants you and I, he wants us to be doers of the word. Christianity isn't passive. It isn't indifferent. It's about faith and action. And it's no different here. It's no different in how you respond to trials. You must respond in acting faith. So listen, we do this so that we don't waste them. Otherwise, we'll miss their divinely intended purpose for our lives and we'll fail to respond appropriately. We waste them and we fail to benefit from them. How sad is that? Think about this. How sad is that that not only, not only you go through a trial, but on the other end of the trial, you're not the better for it. Again, Doug Moo, he comments, he says this, James reminds his readers that God brings difficulties into their lives for a purpose and that this purpose can be accomplished only if, listen, only if they respond in the right way. So notice, we must respond to our trials in the right way. It's not enough to simply experience trials. We all do. Nor is it enough to even recognize there's a divine purpose for your trials. That's not enough if we don't respond appropriately to our trials. You hear what I'm saying? So in other words, simply going through trials, friend, it doesn't automatically produce steadfastness and maturity in you. No, no. I think there's this common assumption, this common misconception among Christians that trials produce maturity. No, that's not true. That's not completely true. Verse 3 isn't an automatic promise. Simply thinking that suffering is going to automatically make you a mature Christian. That is not true. A person can go through many trials, various trials. They can even recognize there's a divine purpose in those trials. They can have James 2, 1, 2 to 4 memorized, stuck on their bathroom mirror, and still fail to act in faith and grow. Now why is that? How is that possible? I think Tim Keller captures this effectively in his wonderful book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Here's what he says. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person than before. Trials and troubles, he says, in life will either make you or break you, but either way, you will not remain the same. Have you experienced this? Have you known someone like this? 
They go through some kind of serious, difficult trial, and what happens? What happens? They end up bitter. They end up resentful. They end up hardened in their heart toward God. But then, then, another person can go through the exact same trial, and that trial increases and strengthens their faith. Faith, they become more joyful, they become more godly as a result. What's the difference? What's the difference? Here's the difference, brothers and sisters. It's all about their response to it. So what's the necessary response? What's the appropriate response to these trials? These divinely purposed trials in our life. How do we grow in steadfastness? How do we grow in perseverance? How do we grow in endurance and in maturity? And that's where we meet James's first two commands. Two commands, two imperatives, two exhortations. Here's what you do. And there's two of them. Notice, verse two, verse four. So imperative number one, command number one. Notice verse two. What should be the Christian's necessary response to trials. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. <laughs> wow. Count it all joy. Say what, James? Joy? We are to respond to our trials by counting them as joy? This is most surprising. Is it not? Did you expect that? Because I'll confess to you that that is often not my first instinctive response to trials in my life. Is that yours? This, this isn't typically how I meet a trial in my life. I don't normally count it all joy. No, instead, here's what I do. Sadly, here's my often immediate reactive response to trials. It's what? It's to complain. It's to gripe. Why me, God? And when I do that, when you do that, guess what? You're wasting your trial. You're wasting it. And I'm tired of wasting my trials. I'm tired of it. So what are we to do? How do we obey it? Just walk through that command with me there, word by word. Just look there. First, notice the first thing we do, verse 2. First thing we're to do, Here's how we respond. We count it. We count. We count means to consider. Means to evaluate. It means, actually, it's a mathematical term that means to calculate. It means to assess. So in other words, James is saying here, Christian, Christian, when a trial comes into your life, give careful thought to it. Give careful consideration to the trial in your life from a theological perspective. Having been informed now from a biblical perspective as to the purpose of your trials, consider your trials from the standpoint of its divine purpose in your life. So notice, James, James is commanding us here how to think about our trials. Not, listen, how we should feel about our trials. You see the difference? The command is not feel it all joy. The command is count it all joy. Now why is that important? Well, it's important because this isn't a call to superficial happiness. This isn't a call to where you just put on a face and you just smile and you just act like everything is okay. 
That's not what James is saying. No, this is a deliberate, intentional choice we make. As one commentator says, James calls us to reckon any situation, however difficult, as an occasion of intense joy. So by way of application, brothers and sisters here, be reminded that this, this is an imperative. This is a command to Christians. James is commanding us here to act in faith on this. So what does that look like? Here's what we do. Here's what it looks like to consider, to, to, to count, to, to assess your trial. It means that when trials come into my life, my first response isn't to just simply react to it or even to be passive in it, but to consider it. In other words, I ask myself the question, what is God's divine purpose for this in my life? What does God want to do in this, in my life? How does he want my faith to grow? How does he want to strengthen my faith? What am I to learn? We consider it. But notice the second thing about this imperative. Look there, verse 2. We count it all joy. All joy. Notice. Notice we are to count it all joy. That, that, that word all there, it describes the kind of joy this is to be. Meaning, we are to count it pure joy. We are to count it great joy. We are to count it as an occasion for intense joy. Now let me, again, just be clear here what James is not saying. James, he, he isn't saying that we are to enjoy suffering. He's not saying our trials are enjoyable in and of themselves. That's not what he's saying. James isn't a masochist. Nor is he saying joy is the only response we should have. As if there is no room for grief. Or there is no room for sorrow. Or there is no room for pain. No, Christians can actually, believe it or not, feel joy and sorrow simultaneously. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says in verse 12, He is sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. So then what is James saying? Here's what he's saying. The reason we can consider our trials as opportunities, as occasions for intense joy, is because while being mindful of God's divine purpose in our trials, we joyfully recognize that they are under his sovereign authority and he is working in them. He is accomplishing through them as we respond rightly to his gracious purposes in our lives. And what again is this divine purpose? Notice there again, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces endurance. It produces perseverance. So, so God, he wants our faith to be strong. He wants our faith to persevere to the end. And it's only through trials that our faith is tested and it perseveres and it's strengthened. And, by, and by that, notice in verse 4, we endure, we persevere. Notice it there in verse 4, steadfastness isn't the end goal here. That's not the ultimate goal. Just that we would be steadfast. What's the ultimate goal? 
Notice the end goal, verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect. That, so here's the end goal, Christian, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God's goal in our lives is maturity in Christ. Growth in Christ's likeness. He wants us to be perfect. That word there, it means whole, it means mature, but I, I, I don't want to just lessen that word, perfect. He wants you to be perfect, which you'll never be in this life, but I'm not going to lower James's divine standard here. He wants you perfect. He wants you, notice, complete, meaning spiritual whole. Because one day, all of us, we're going to stand before Almighty God. And God's goal from now until then is to get you ready for that day, Christian. He's moving you toward that goal and it's only by keeping our hearts and our minds on that goal, brothers and sisters, that our trials can be viewed as opportunities for intense joy because this is what God is doing in them. This is what he's doing through them. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Hear James, hear God speak through James saying that to you because I'm working in you. This is what I'm doing to get you to the end. Which leads to the last imperative. Imperative number two, verse four. How else are we to respond? Verse four. We are to respond with persistent endurance. We are to respond with persistent endurance. Verse four. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Oh my. Beloved, this is a command. Let. Let it have its full effect. In other words, in the midst of your trials, Christian, submit to God's sovereign plan. Humble yourself under his purposes in your trials by allowing the trials that come into your life which he has purposed to do their intended work in you let it have its full effect in other words it's a call to persistent patient endurance in trials I think you would agree with me that we spend most of our lives don't we at least maybe I do Maybe you're in the same boat. We spend most of our lives trying to avoid trials and suffering at all costs, don't we? We want comfortable, carefree, pain-free lives. I mean, that's why air conditioning exists, right? Thank the Lord for it. We want to be comfortable. And that's the goal of many people. But James says, listen, that's not the Christian's goal. That's not the goal for the Christian. The Christian has a different goal. What's the goal? What's the goal? Verse 4. We are to let steadfastness have its full effect so that we would be, notice, perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Patient, persistent endurance leads to spiritual maturity. 
The words of Alagmatia are so helpful here. He says this. He says in verse 4, James brings a word of caution. He says, a believer might endure for a while and then tire of enduring. In this case, the desired growth to maturity is halted midway. He says, there, ha- there has to be a persistency of enduring. The road, therefore, is hard and long and the task is unrelenting. We are, he says, to endure at the first onset of the trial. We are to endure again while the trial persists. And then we are to go on enduring. We are thus called to persistent endurance. But this hard road has a glorious destination. Now why do I say that? Here's why. Because there are many of you in this room right now where the Christian life is a hard road. It's a long road. It's a difficult road. And you've been suffering for a long time and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. And I pray that this passage, it would put fresh strength in your soul to patiently, persistently endure, allowing your steadfastness to have its full effect. So beloved, listen, keep your eyes on the goal. Your trials are refining you. They are strengthening you. They are enabling you to persevere. They have a divine purpose in your life. And as you persistently, by grace, endure them with steadfastness, guess what? You're displaying that your faith is real. It's genuine. So keep your eyes on the goal. And James is going to draw our attention to the goal again. In fact, he's going to conclude this section of trials. Just notice with me. We'll be done by drawing our attention to eternity future. Look there again, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive, receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the goal, receiving the crown of life. Do you want the crown of life? Do you want the crown of life? It's guaranteed. You will reach the end because he will keep you. He will hold you fast as you endure. But this crown, this crown, notice, is also a gift. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Your steadfastness can't earn you this crown. No. The only reason you get this crown is because we receive it by grace through faith. It's because what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 tells us is that it was Jesus who for the joy that was set before him, remember that? He endured the cross, despising its shame. It's all by grace. It's all the cross. So that you might receive the crown of life as you persistently endure in faith. Is that your goal? Then don't waste your trials. Let me pray. Father, thank you for persevering grace. Thank you, Lord, that it is not us who keeps us to the end. 
It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has bought for us, who has purchased for us the faith that will get us to the end. And Lord, right now in this life, you are refining that imperfect faith. Would you strengthen my brothers and sisters as they face trials? I pray, Lord, that they would respond appropriately to those trials. That it would not lead them to bitterness, but it would lead them to joy because of what you're doing in them. We pray all of this for the glory of the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.